All right, hello everyone, and welcome back into the Sports Mill Podcast. On today's episode, we're finally talking about some football, both NFL and college. I've got Andrew Sullivan joining me once again. Sorry for the week away. I had to take a week off to be somewhere else, but we're back talking about sports. Luckily, we're at the time of year where not much is going on, but we do have some stuff to talk about today. And we're going to kick it off by talking about kind of some free agent trade stuff going on in the world of sports. We're going to talk about a couple of different things uh, in different sports, but the main one involves my Boston Celtics. We keep coming back to the NBA because it keeps giving us storylines, so that's where we're going to start today. We got some NFL talk about some quarterbacks, and then we're going to close with some college football realignment, get Sully's take on it, maybe some teams who can win it all this year. But let's start with the news that the Celtics are aggressively pursuing trading for Kevin Durant. Um, I don't think anybody thinks this is a surprise that the Celtics want Kevin Durant or any team wants Kevin Durant. But especially coming off a title, uh, or at least a championship run where they lost in six games to the Warriors, it may be a little surprising they're they're blowing up their team, if you will, to try and go get Kevin Durant. But it makes sense considering they think they're that close to getting over the over the hump. Um, obviously, you know Jalen Brown has been rumored to be in this trade. Several other pieces as well. But I think the question is, you know, the Nets need to get something back in for, for Kevin Durant to make this worthwhile, and so. The first question I want to pose to you, Sully, is uh, is Jalen Brown and whatever they throw in there, is that does that make the Nets happy? And then is this something the Celtics should even be considering? Yeah, I think it obviously Brown by himself is not an equal player to Kevin Durant. But with the amount of draft picks that would have to be thrown into a deal that the Nets would accept at this point, I do think Brown is pretty close to the best value you're going to get for a guy like Durant at this point. A lot of these teams just aren't really flexible enough to make those types of moves at this point. Like the Heat, they can't, Bam Adebayo can't be traded to the Nets because of the rule that states you can't have two players on their rookie max extensions traded to your team. So like Ben Simmons is limiting some of the assets that they could get there from a team like Miami. So I think it's a pretty good return for the Nets. Now, I think as we get into this, we'll probably get into the specifics of who exactly would be given up here because I think where a lot of Celtics fans have started to hesitate a little is when the offer is Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, and three or four first-round picks added on top of it because at that point, you're starting to take a little bit more away from a roster that was very solid on its own last year. So, that that's kind of what I wanted to throw back to you is like, it is Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, and let's say three first round picks. Is that too much to give up for Kevin Durant? I mean, I in a in a world where all things are equal, I don't think it is too much. But because the Celtics are so close to winning a championship, it feels like too much. If that makes sense. Because I thought after their additions of Malcolm Brogdon and Gallinari, obviously there's no guarantee that they're going to win at all. But I think they finally got some of the things they were missing from last finals. And the argument could be made, why not just run it back and you were so close to winning it all. And if you make the trade for Kevin Durant, you're kind of blowing up the roster that you built to win a championship. And so that's where I think the catch, and we'll we'll talk about their chances if they were to trade for him, but the catch-22 there is, you know, well, if we trade for Kevin Durant, what does that do to, you know, the chemistry in, in the roster that we have set up that was already so successful? Is it is it worth the risk? And obviously, you know, the Celtics have kind of been really careful with 
with not trading away Marcus Smart and keeping Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum together. And it just seems like it is a dice roll if the Celtics were to go and get Kevin Durant. And that's the only thing that scares me is that, you know, obviously you have to be willing to take risks. But I I wonder, and, you know, I, I don't know. So what we would just have to see, you know, would the team be better with Kevin Durant or they've assembled enough good players now, would they be better off just leaving him on the table? And that's where I you know what questions, not to say that the value they are giving up is not some insane value, especially when we see what Rudy Gobert went for, but I just don't know if it's, it's the right move. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that Brown smart and three firsts that to me feels pretty much like equal value for Durant in terms of just what you're giving up. Like, I think that is a package that the Nets would actually consider. The other part of this, though, is, as we, as I mentioned, like who else can make the Celtics throw in Marcus Smart instead of Derek White or Grant Williams, right? Because you know that that's what the Celtics are going to try to offer before they have to give up Smart. So, you know, does a New Orleans get involved? Do they offer Brandon Ingram and, you know, five firsts? Because they, they have like 13 over the next, um, I think, six or seven years that they can play with here. So they're one of those teams that have a guy that, you know, I think most people would say Brandon Ingram and Jalen Brown are not too far apart as players at this point, and they have the picks to throw in. But if they're not willing to get aggressive there, then the Celtics might be able to get away with holding on to Smart. And I, I think, to me, if you hold on to Smart, I think it's absolute no-brainer. Like, I think you, I think you have to do it just because generally my philosophy is like, I would rather be very, very good for three or four years and really maximize my chances of winning a championship than be solid for seven or eight. I know some people might might be the other way around on that would say like, I'd rather just have more dice rolls and maybe one year it'll go our way. I would personally rather just have a roster that I think is good enough where I'm not worried about anything stopping us from winning a championship, but yeah, the smart offer, I think, I, I think if it was Jalen Smart in three firsts, I would probably do it for Durant just because now you also have Brogdon. And so if you were if you were dropping Smart and didn't have another point guard and like Peyton Pritchard and Derek White were going to be your guards for the year, like that, that would concern me. Like, I don't, I'm not sure that team is, you know, a team I would look at and say that's a championship caliber team right off the bat. But with Brogdon there, I think he will replace enough of Smart's production, even if it's not the all, you know, all NBA defense. He'll he'll probably contribute a little more on the offensive end. I think I would be willing to do that just because I look at that roster and immediately think that they're, if not the championship favorite, they're right there with anybody else. Yeah, I mean, the thing for the Celtics is that you have to kind of separate your your heart from what makes sense and if you have a chance to get Kevin Durant then you know you you have to strongly consider it no matter who you're giving up and that's kind of where I'm at with it where I'm, I I would like to get Kevin Durant on my basketball team and so I'm not disappointed necessarily that we're giving up Jalen Brown even though I, I have liked him on the Celtics but it's doesn't make sense for what where our roster would look like after and to me, the stinky part about this is that Marcus Smart kind of gets the the reputation of like, well, you know, he's the defensive player of the year. He's been so instrumental for the Celtics. 
But when you look at him as a player, he kind of it's kind of like the Draymond Green thing where you look at Draymond Green individually, he's not that good. And Marcus Smart is not going to be the savior of Nets basketball, right? I mean, that's not the type of player he is. And that's that's what's kind of frustrating to me is that he probably means more to the Celtics than to anybody else. And so I wish the Nets would not push so hard for him because I'm thinking he's not going to be that great for you. Like, I mean, when Derek White is right, there's not that much difference between him and Smart, especially offensively. Um, they're about the same player. And so that's what stinks for me is I wish we could find a way to hold on to Marcus Smart if we we did this deal, like you said, because he means a lot more to the Celtics than he does to any other team. And I do think with him and Brogdon as the backcourt – that's a very good compliment to Tatum and Durant. And I think the Tatum and Durant combo would be the the I would go ahead and say it's the best duo in the league because Tatum is is the closest thing I think we have to Durant and he's only getting better and Durant hopefully has a couple more years of of really being really really good and I think, you know, the Celtics would be you know ashamed of themselves if they did not win a championship if they made that trade and were able to hold on to Marcus Smart um so I in that sense of that I'm all for the trade if they're able to do that yeah I I agree I think the other difficult thing with them a little bit is that they are not going to be able to throw in you know if, if they really wanted to keep smart they may they may not necessarily have the flexibility that some of these other teams do in terms of picks because they have used those already you know and Derek White trade and now the Malcolm Brogdon trade like they are more limited in the assets they can give up in the future so that's the problem because I agree I I don't think the Nets are super excited to bring in Marcus Smart like I'm not sure that's like he feels like a guy that if I was the Nets I would almost rather see if I could flip and get something else back maybe some younger a younger player or some draft capital that you could move later on so I, I agree there, but I wonder if you're the Nets, like do the Celtics have anything else valuable enough that you are willing to not accept smart in the deal? Maybe, you know, maybe you would take Derek White and Grant Williams instead of smart. Like, I, I don't even, I don't know if that's better for the Celtics though, because you're starting to sacrifice a little bit more depth pretty quickly there if you're throwing out three rotation players in one trade. So I, I would be very interested to see how these discussions go and specifically what Boston is prioritizing, whether it's holding on to Marcus Smart at all costs or trying to make sure that they have a little bit of future draft capital left after the, after a trade like this so that they can maybe go get a little bit more help later on at the deadline if they needed it. That's kind of the thing I'm most interested in at this point, but I do think this is very real and, but it might take a while to recover because I was listening to, Zach, I was listening to Zach Lowe's podcast today, and he said that he thought that the Nets still want to try to bring Durant back, and that it would take a massive offer right now for them to decide to get rid of him. So, because I think they kind of want to call this bluff a little bit and see, like, would you actually not play, or could you just come back? You know, he's got four years left on his contract. He's not a guy like. Kyrie who is okay with sitting out like we know he's a very competitive guy he loves just the game of basketball he loves playing basketball so I do think there's going to be a little bit of a waiting period here to see like can the Nets just bring him back like because I think that's probably what they would want to do if they can and so at this point I think it would take a very aggressive offer for them to be pried out of their hand for Durant to be pried out of their hands at this point 
Yeah, and, and that's why I don't think the Celtics should do the deal from that standpoint, purely because the Nets, I mean, let's not remember, every deal is not created equal, right? And the Nets remember what the Celtics did to them, uh, you know, 10 years ago with the whole trading, all those draft picks for the Celtics, uh, you know, Kevin Durant, Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, and even that has nothing to do with now, they're not, they don't want to be fleeced again. And so I think they're going to try to get everything they can from the Celtics, which is why I would not do the trade if that's what it comes to, where we're giving so much away that it's almost not worth it. But then part of me is like, you know, we get Kevin Durant, and this is where it's hard because it's like, what version of Kevin Durant are you getting? Are you getting the one who's going to be healthy, who's going to play at the, his high level, that's going to be motivated? And we've started to kind of see from him the last couple of years that he seems to get unhappy pretty quickly. Um, and, you know, we saw that happen with Kyrie in Boston as well. And so to kind of put a bow on this, like, yes, the Celtics get Kevin Durant and Jason Tatum. They're going to be championship contenders. But where we live in a world in the NBA now where it's so much like you have to be thinking about your future. And to me, if I'm the Celtics, I'm very scared if I make the deal for Durant, how long my window is before I'm I'm back in rebuilding mode because they just attained a, several pieces who are already veterans. And that's what I would be nervous about is right now you're, you're set up pretty well to be good for a while. And if they make this deal, that window might shrink a lot faster, even though you might have more payoff in the short term. Yeah, I, I think that if you can't get a four-year commitment out of Durant, then you don't do the deal. Like, I think there has to be a meeting where you you come with him and say, like, are you willing to buy in for four years? And I do think, like, I know Durant has now is now moving for the second time pretty recently, but I, again, like, I don't put him in the same category as, like, Kyrie. Like, I feel like every move he's made has been pretty logical. It's been, you know, he didn't want to play with Russ anymore in Oklahoma City. He wanted to play you know, a perfect brand of basketball, which he got to do in Golden State, but then realized that 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 winning easy championships wasn't as fulfilling. So he wants to go play with his friend Kyrie. That blows up. So I'm not as concerned about him, like getting into a situation and just bailing as I might be with some other guys. Now, it doesn't mean it would never happen and you would definitely have to protect yourself as much as possible against that. But he's not a guy that I bring in and I'm like immediately concerned about that. And the biggest thing to me as well, which would also push me over the edge and wanting to make this deal if I was Boston, is because of the way Jalen Brown's contract is structured, he cannot sign a max extension because of the way the rules are set up. Like for contracts, you can only go up a certain percent. I think it's like you can only go 120% on an extension, which means there's no reason for Brown to sign an extension with the Celtics because if he reaches unrestricted free agency, he will immediately get paid more money and get a max. So in two years, Jalen Brown is definitely going to be an unrestricted free agent and the Celtics would have the upper hand. They would be able to offer him more money, but you are running the risk at that point of a guy finding a team that he would prefer to be on. And even if you don't think it's a high chance, you know, that that would also be something you need to figure out behind the scenes of Brown's commitment level. But 
I also don't know that Brown's commitment level after this has been leaked out is going to be super high because it seems like he's a little fed up with being talked about in every single trade offer from the Celtics. You know, back to the Anthony Davis, Kawhi Leonard rumors, he was talked about in both of those. Now we're kind of on the third superstar that has been rumored to go to the Celtics. So if you don't think the commitment level is there from Brown, especially if you're worried about him re-signing in two years as an unrestricted free agent, then I think the perspective shifts a little bit because then, I mean, what, I, I mean, obviously you're going to want to have Durant for two years versus Brown for two years. The whole discussion is like, do I want Brown for eight years or Durant for four? So if you don't know that Brown's going to be around for much longer then I think it's much easier to pull the trigger and say like, we we're already in a shorter window. We just have to maximize it. Yeah. That's a really good point to close this out is that, you know, Jalen Brown has, flaws at the end of the day as a basketball player and not only that but he hasn't always been super happy with being in Boston as far as the team goes and I think he you know I think he likes playing there but this is where it becomes you know you look at your roster and you think what gives me the best chance to win championships and I do think that if you make a deal for Kevin Durant now and you like where your roster is at, Brad Stevens isn't dumb. He's he's played him and Danny Ainge have played the long game of we're going to build this roster up until we get to a point to where we know we can win a championship. And it's there now. And so if you have a good deal on the table for Kevin Durant, everything is sitting there in front of you to win a championship. They just got to press the button to do it. And I do think while it would hurt, you know, some Celtics fans feelings and definitely Jalen Brown's, you know, all that will go away with winning and that winning cures all, you know, that's the saying. So I do think that if there is a good deal on the table, the Celtics are going to, are going to, are going to hit it. And, and hopefully the nets don't take too much away from us. But I, you know, I think that the Celtics are, are, are in a good spot to land him as long as, like you said, another team doesn't come in and up the ante, which could definitely happen. So we'll, we'll continue to monitor that Kevin Durant situation. Um, and I, and I do think we'll, we'll see, you know, some, some fireworks here happen as we get closer to the year, or we could be on back on the nets. Who knows? All right. Uh, a couple more uh, free agent deals. I want to talk about in other sports really quickly. And I'll let Sully kind of talk about this next one in detail. Um, in major league baseball, Juan Soto is a superstar. You know, he's kind of comparable to Kevin Durant, I guess, in the sense of he's kind of a generational talent, even though it's, it's different sports. Uh, the nationals don't seem like they're going to be able to keep him. You know, he, he turned down the enormous amount of money. I think it was $440 million, something like that. Soto said no to it, which is, you know, insane to think when we're making, you know, never going to see a million dollars. But Soto says no to that much guaranteed money, acting like he's probably out the door. Um, what is your sense of how fast Soto is going to be moved if he is? And, you know, what are some things we could see team-wise maybe where he could end up? Yeah, I, I do think he's probably gone because it seems to me like once the number goes public, that is the team trying to save face. The Nationals are trying to leak out. We made a huge offer. We offered him, you know, as quote unquote, as much as we possibly could so that they can go back and tell their fans that they gave the best shot they could at a player who's one of the best players that their franchise has ever had. $440 million obviously is a ridiculous amount of money. If it's a 15-year deal, I'm confident he will get more than that in the open market because, there, I mean, the 
the AAV average annual value on it was not even $30 million and you know, whatever, $30 million, like that's a lot of money, but that is not what he would get in the open market. I think you're looking at a guy that's going to be on a 15 year deal. I would guess it's probably going to be closer to 35. So maybe the, maybe the deal is not, you know, 15 years, maybe it's 12 or 13, but I, I don't think he was ridiculous to decline that offer, and especially not in Washington, because Washington is about to have an ownership change, and they're just flat out terrible. Like I, I don't know why you would take a deal that's below market value to stay on a team that ha- you have no reason to stay on. Like he already won a World Series with them, so that's been fulfilled, and they're on a the roster is not ready to compete anytime soon. So the the Nationals like they need to prove to him why he should stay. Like Soto has no reason to. And so to answer your second question, I think the Cardinals are a team that definitely show up because they have a lot of MLB ready prospects and that it's going to take a ton of guys. They also have, I think, enough depth where they could trade a few MLB pieces along as well. We know the Padres are going to be aggressive because they always are. I think the Dodgers could be as well. Maybe the Giants, you know, Mets, Yankees, you know, basically it's all the rich teams, right? It's the same teams that are competing for these top free agents. But to me, he is probably gone because I you, I think if you're the Nationals, if you know that you're not paying him more than that, you've got to trade him now because his value is the highest it's ever going to be. So if you can maximize your prospect return, I think you do it now. Right. I think you brought up a really good point there as to why he's going to be traded because there's no incentive for the for Soto to stay with Washington, right? I mean, he like you said, I think the biggest piece of this is he's already done more than almost anyone ever has in Washington. I mean, he won them a World Series, not by himself, but was on a, a World Series winning team. You know, he's a great player, a superstar talent, and he's in Washington where they're not really showing him as the love he deserves. And at this point, he already is good enough to where he can go make his money somewhere else. And, you know, like you said, there's a lot of different teams that are going to take a look at him that can pay him a lot of money. But as far as him staying in Washington goes, yeah, I I think Washington knows, like, well, we don't have much to keep him here. We won a World Series, and I guess that's good enough for us because there's really nothing that I, I think there's nothing really they can do to convince him to stay unless you're just going to throw an inordinate amount of money at him, which I don't think they will. Yeah, and that is what it's going to take because – the, the most ridiculous thing about this is Soto's only 23. Like most of these guys that are at this point where it's kind of like, okay, we're probably going to lose them in a few years. What do we do? They're 28 or 29. But Soto could sign a 15-year deal and still be a pretty good player when that contract ends because I he is a guy that I think will age pretty well. His plate discipline is his number one skill, and you're not just going to forget that as you get older. That That should only improve. His bat-to-ball skills are elite. He's not overly reliant on speed or athleticism. So this is a guy where I I don't think a long-term contract is going to be looked back upon as, you know, some massive albatross that was a horrible decision. And especially when he is so young, he, I mean, it's crazy to say he might not have entered his prime yet at this point. Like, we don't know if we've seen the best of him yet. So... Yeah, I think he will get moved, but it sounds like it's probably going to be like the largest prospect return we've seen for one single player. 
Yeah, I mean, I think Kevin Durant and him are, are a good kind of match together because we're in this age of sports where it seems like, not that Soto has been unhappy in Washington, but there it's just inevitable that these mega stars, if they're in a place where they don't like, they get antsy. They, it, it's the the staying in one place just doesn't last, and we're we're starting to see these mega deals with these huge prospects, huge you know assets coming back and across all sports, um, and I think that it's, that's what's going to be the landscape for a while and maybe we see that change in the nba with the new cba maybe we see that change in, in other sports as well but for right now that that's what it is across all sports all right oh, we have something yeah, else I'll, i'm gonna add one more thing yeah like the other thing too is that teams are smarter and in this case like the nationals realize like teams in the past would just not trade a guy he would hit free agency and then they would lose him for nothing like in this case i'm not sure it was soto saying like i want to go I think he probably is not opposed to leaving because he wants to be on a better team. But this to me didn't feel like a situation where he comes in and says like, I demand to be traded. It's they, they realize like, okay, we've got two and a half years left with this guy. His value is highest right now. If we wait, our team still might not be very good in a couple years and our farm system will be, will be bad. I mean, Soto is a guy that can, can turn your farm system around like in terms of, acquiring some top prospects from another team. So I think it's a combination of like players have more power, but teams are also more willing to look in the mirror and say, what's best for our future and make that decision that might be pushing the timeline down the road a little bit, but in the long run will probably be more effective for their team. Right. Because as you already mentioned, one reason Soto wouldn't want to stay is because of how bad they are. So the nationals, you know, it's almost, counterintuitive but by trading Soto they get better probably in the long run Um, and that's what they're going to have to weigh at when they're trying to trade him away all right we're going to take a quick break before we talk about our football discussion we'll talk about some deals there as well Uh, but that that wraps up our, our free agent trade intro if you will I guess not free agents but stars that may be traded in the near future Uh, so we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back with that All right, it's officially that time of the year where my brain has switched from thinking about basketball, switched to thinking about baseball even, although I'm still concerned about it, and looking forward to football. It's only a month away-ish. It's on the horizon, both college football and NFL, so we're going to start talking about it now. Uh, We got some episodes I'm planning to do coming out, kind of like we did last year. Me and Sully will probably do a full preview of NFL, kind of pick division winners, pick the Super Bowl winners, same thing with college football. And we'll probably do a fantasy episode as well. Um, But right now, I just want to talk about some of the things that we are looking forward to in this next season, especially some specific quarterback questions in the NFL and then some overall college football topics. That's what it's going to be uh, in the next 15 minutes or so. Um, And so let's start talking about the quarterbacks. Like uh, We don't really know exactly what the teams are going to look like yet, but there's a lot of questions coming in, especially with all the movement that we saw in the offseason with a lot of new teams having new signal callers. So it's kind of what we did a couple of weeks ago with the KD uh, draft where we'll just pick, um, we picked teams that we thought it'd be really interesting to see him traded to. Um, we're going to do that with quarterbacks. So I gave Sully the assignment of let's pick three quarterbacks you're really interested in seeing or you have questions about. I'm going to do the same thing and we're going to talk about them. Uh, maybe this will give you something to think about before the season actually starts. Uh, so Sully, I'll let you start. And if you have any thoughts but beforehand, you can go ahead. Yeah, I'll I'll start with my first one. I, I'll probably I guess I'll go with my least impactful one first. 
Um, I think my first one that I'm most curious to see is Daniel Jones. With Brian Dayball coming into the Giants organization, guys like Kadarius Toney coming back after an injury, they drafted Wandale Robinson. The offensive line should be improved. You still have Saquon there. I think this is the first time, and to me, Daniel Jones is the Sam Darnold of this season, where he's now in a situation where I think we can properly analyze him and really find out the answer to, is he bad or was he just in a terrible situation and is actually an okay quarterback? Because one of the biggest things that's hurt him so so far is the turnovers. And you know, with such a terrible offensive line that he's had over the past few years, it's obviously going to be very easy to turn the ball over a ton. And I believe they drafted Evan Neal. I think that's right. And so that should help their offensive line as well. And he is a guy where I, I do think, like I think we look at him because he's from Duke and, you know, he's he looks like a boring or more boring version of Eli Manning that we don't think of him as athletic, but like he does have good physical traits. It, that, that isn't really the issue with him. So he's a guy where if Dayball is as good of an offensive coach as we think he is, comes in and overhauls the offense, I could see him, you know, I don't ever think he'll be one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, but I think there is a world where Daniel Jones is still the starting quarterback of the Giants next season after he becomes a free agent. And so I'm very interested to see how that plays out or if they decide, you know, it's time to hit the reset button and maybe draft a quarterback next year. Yeah, and I think that's a really good pick of a quarterback to watch out for. And, you know, the saying is history repeats itself. And, you know, these situations are the same every time. You know, it's always the same in the NFL. And, you know, I heard not long ago, and I don't even think they were talking about Daniel Jones, but when a new coach comes in, when a new GM comes in, there's either two things that can happen. They come in and the team wins, and it's like, oh, we fixed the problem. We got the coach out. We just got the right guys in, and now we're ready to roll. Or the, the new coach comes in, they still stink, and the coach turns around and says, well, this isn't my guy. Like, I, I didn't draft him. I didn't want him. He was just here when I got here. And that's that's now it for Daniel Jones. We've had enough of, well, we think he could be good. He's had chances. It's make or break. And like you said with Sam Darnold, it's now time to to pay the piper and the evaluation is going to come down. And so I do think if they don't show serious success this year and, and even you know probably make the playoffs or at least push for them, he's probably out the door. And I'm glad you went with him first. I apologize if I'm about to take one of your one of your three because I think Tua Tagovailoa is in the same situation, and that's that's who I'm really interested to see. Obviously, a lot of people I know talk about him because he played for Alabama. You know, I stood up for him last year on on my podcast when the season was starting because people were just hammering him like, where what happened to him from college? And I was on the you know train. We haven't seen enough of him. Like he was injured. The Dolphins don't really let him do anything. I think he could still be really good. And a year later, I still kind of believe all of that. But we also really haven't seen anything to make me believe Tua is a really good NFL quarterback. And you could even say more so with with Tua that he has weapons around him now to, if he doesn't succeed, then it's maybe just because he's bad. And I think, you know, this year with him, with, with um, I know you love, uh, we both love our guy Mike Mitchell. Um, he's going to put him in an opportunity to succeed. And then not only that, but he probably has the best wide receiver as far as playmaking in all sport, in all football. And so Tua is going to be under the gun this year. Now they're in a they're probably in a more difficult division than the Giants are because the Patriots and the Bills are there. 
But Tua at least has to show that he is a quarterback worthy of being a starter and not just a game manager. Because that's what he was in, in college was this, you know, got this quarterback who won you games, um, not one you could win with, if you will, not one you could just have on your team. And so I think there's a lot of pressure on Tua as there has been, but this is probably in the same way that Daniel Jones, it's either going to be he's there next year or he's out the door. Tua's kind of headed towards that same spot. Yeah, I think so. Especially, you know, it's a blessing and a curse sometimes for these young quarterbacks when they actually get talent in the building. And that's exactly what has happened here with Tyreek Hill. Like, obviously, Tua is going to have so much higher of a chance to succeed. But if he's bad, we're also going to have no excuses for for that happening now. So it's going to be very interesting, I think, to see how that unfolds this season. You know, he now has two guys that are perfect for the very precise, you know, underneath brand of football that he played. I mean, Jalen Waddle, I think he set the rookie receptions record last year. Like that, that is how much volume that Waddle was able to absorb. So you think about that's already what his relationship with Waddle was. I see no reason why that can't happen with Tyreek Hill as well. And the the biggest thing with that I need to see from Tua is I need to see him be good at the things that we were sure he was good at in college because like as a processor, I had absolutely no questions and I still don't think he's a bad processor, but when you're not an elite arm talent, when you're not an elite athlete, you've got to be very, very good there. And I'm, I'm not sure that he is yet. Like there are still times where he would make throws where I'd be scratching my head, whether that's, you know, throwing into double coverage or staring down an open receiver for a little too long. So, especially with guys that are going to be able to create this much space, like Waddle and Tua, and then obviously you still have, you know, Mike Gesicki as the bigger receiving target. I that is what I'm most curious to see because, no, he may not ever be, you know, one of the most explosive quarterbacks, but I do think he has the tools to be a starter in this league. So, hopefully, he can rein those in and, and figure that out before it's too late. Yeah, everything you said is true. I mean, I think. Obviously, you have to you have to see the pieces fit together. Like it sounds good on paper, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work out. But he pretty much has at least some sort of skill at every position now. There's no excuse for that, and so it's just you know running the offense and getting it in the right spots. And you know I hope he can do it. Um, but like you said, if you're expecting him to be this like superstar figure, it's it's probably not going to happen. Yeah, definitely. All right, I can give my next one. Let's see. I'll give the one I think you're more likely to steal from me. The first one I kind of went off the board. Trey Lance is my second guy. And I talked about him on one of the fantasy episodes that I did on my podcast recently because obviously his rushing upside is is there. But focusing just on their overall play, not necessarily on fantasy, I think I'm probably more interested to watch him this year than really any other quarterback because first of all, I really liked him in the draft. And I think he is one of he is a guy that has the physical tools where if if it works out, this guy could be a very, very good NFL quarterback. Like it's not it's not a guy whose ceiling is very limited. And if he's really good, I see no reason why the 49ers aren't a Super Bowl contender. So to me, the 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 flip the the trade-off with him this year, the range of outcomes is so broad because the 49ers are a team that are ready to succeed right now. And I think today they they reported it was reported that 
John Lynch, their GM, Kyle Shanahan, and Garoppolo had a sit-down meeting where it was made clear that Lance is the guy now. Like, they are ready to move on. Garoppolo can be there. You know, if Lance gets hurt, he may come in and play a little bit. They'll, They'll work together to find a trade partner for him. But Lance is the guy, and especially with we know how Shanahan loves to scheme the run game, you got to think that's certainly going to be a part of the Trey Lance experience as well. So he's a guy where, like, I, I really like the 49ers this year as a team, as a roster. They've been banged up a little bit the past couple of years. We saw last year they even still advanced deep into the playoffs um, in what felt like a, a year filled with turmoil, you know, Garoppolo not playing great at the quarterback position. So if they could make it that far last year and almost make it back to the Super Bowl, if Lance hits, I think this is one of the best teams in the NFL. And I I think Lance has a very good chance to be a great quarterback. We just haven't seen much of it yet. So I'm really excited to watch him. And I think he might have a bigger impact than any of the other guys we mentioned throughout this episode. And that's the question is how good is he? And obviously when you have a young quarterback you haven't seen play, that's always the question. But I heard I heard not long ago somebody talking about this subject because they were saying did are the 49ers you know devaluing J- Jimmy G and just how solid he is because and they brought up Debo Samuel and, and the reason they brought him up is because who was with Trey Lance in training camp this last year you know and seeing him in practice every day right it was Debo Samuel and instead of wanting to play for the 49ers knowing Trey Lance was in the future plans Debo Samuel asked for a trade. And I'm not saying that that means Trey Lance is bad, but if you thought you had the next superstar, would you not want to stay with him? And, you know, obviously there's, that's not, it's not that simple. Samuel has a lot more other problems to worry about, like money. But um, I do think it's interesting that maybe the 49ers are trying to move on a little too quick to Trey Lance. And that, that would be the question I have. Yeah, I think... I think last season was kind of the nail in the coffin just with we le- we need literally everything to go perfect if Garoppolo is our quarterback to win a Super Bowl. And we saw that, you know, the year they lost to the Chiefs, like that roster was that roster was definitely better than the Chiefs roster. But then down the stretch, Mahomes made the ridiculous throw and Jimmy overthrew Emmanuel Sanders, right? Like that's it's crazy that if he hits that throw, the 49ers are probably a Super Bowl champion right now and Garoppolo is likely still their quarterback but I think they've gotten to the point where they just they think like I I think you could technically you could probably win a Super Bowl with Garoppolo but you would have to be so perfect everywhere else that I think they probably feel like you know maybe maybe Garoppolo is still slightly better than Lance right now but if we're going to go win a Super Bowl then we have to have somebody better than Jimmy and so Lance is a guy that definitely has the potential to reach there so to me, I do think it's time just because if Jimmy was, I don't know, if Jimmy was Derek Carr, then I would say like, okay, like he's in a different tier. Like that guy can win a Super Bowl with a roster as good as the 49ers, but I'm just not sure Jimmy is good enough where I would want to limit my ceiling with him as my quarterback. Yeah, all fair points. And, and definitely that's what teams are looking for. Or, or, as we talked about, quarterbacks that can win you games, not win win with. And, uh, you know, yeah. th- that's what they're hoping for in Trey Lance. All right, you went young. I'm going to go old here. And I think this quarterback has ever since what happened in the, in the Super Bowl where they where – they, Oh, this was mine. They suffered a, a, a big, obviously, comeback when, when the Falcons lost to the Patriots is Matt Ryan. Um, 
And I do think, you know, he's worth talking about because as for as irrelevant as the Falcons have been the last couple of years, Ryan was actually really good last year. Sorry, Sully, if the, I guess I, I, I did take the one that you didn't think I would. Um, yeah. But now he's on the Colts, who the Colts have always seemed to have the roster and not the quarterback. And, you know, they had Andrew Luck coming back, and then he decides to retire. They have Carson Wentz, not good enough. And now they finally have, you know, stability there, hopefully, with Matt Ryan, but he's just older. And I do think he is good enough to get this team pretty far into the playoffs. The division's not there. I think... I think there's going to be a lot of regression from the Titans. I'm definitely not the only one who's jumped on that train. And I think this is the Colts' division to lose. And if Ryan can at least just get the ball to his playmakers, you have the best running back in the NFL, in my opinion, now in Jonathan Taylor, then I'm. it's not as much like a question as exci- I'm excited to see how well the Colts could be, even though they have a 38, 37, however old, and I might be – you know, doing too old there. Matt Ryan is because I really do think they could potentially be a Super Bowl contender. Yeah, the the Bills in the AFC East might be the only team that I'm more confident is going to win their division this year than the Colts because we saw how limited the Colts felt that they were with Carson Wentz as their quarterback. And I I still don't think Wentz was as terrible as people made him out to be. But it's clear that Indianapolis was playing a different way because they didn't trust him behind center. And I don't think that will be an issue at all with Matt Ryan. I also think Ryan, like you mentioned, has been in one of the worst situations in the league. The offensive line is not good. The receiving core has like, has gotten rough there. Like it is, it is nothing. And you know what? They just drafted Drake London now, but Ryan obviously did not get to play with London last year. Um, so that that's been an issue for them as well. And Ryan is perfect for this system. Like you think about the year the Falcons made the Super Bowl. Matt Ryan was playing under Kyle Shanahan's offense. You know, that's play action. That's get guys open across the middle. That's exactly what the Colts are going to be doing. And also is why I really like Michael Pittman in fantasy this year. But that's an aside. I think Ryan will fit in very well here. He's not going to have to do too much because Taylor's Jonathan Taylor is still going to be the foundation of this offense. And the Colts, I think, are going to find themselves in the playoffs. And they're definitely not as um, high-end talented as some of the other teams that we're going to talk about in the AFC when we get to our NFL preview. But I think this is a team that is as close to a lock to, a lock to make the playoffs as there is because of the division they're playing in. And Matt Ryan, I, I think, was going to have a very good year. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think you know this Colts team has kind of just been waiting for a guy that can get them over the hump. And maybe Ryan's that. Maybe he is. All right, I'll let you go last again, and maybe I maybe you'll steal mine this time. Well, those those are my three. I already oh. you already, already got right. No, Ryan, no so, extras. Yeah. <laughs> um, who else? Uh, okay. Well, I like Zach Wilson. I, we won't, we don't spend too much time on this, but he's another guy where it's only his second year, so it's gonna be it's the leash on him is a little longer. Not gonna be as worried if he's not great, but they now actually have real players in New York, like. They they actually drafted you know you know Garrett Wilson Elijah Moore, that's Corey Davis like that's a real receiving group. They do have C.J. Uzoma now. The offensive line is improving. They drafted Brees Hall, Michael Carter at backup running back. So that that offense has enough talent where Wilson should not be terrible this year if if he is going to end up being a good NFL quarterback. And I I still think he's going to be. So that's another guy I would have my eye on. I don't know if it's as impactful as the other guys we talked about because the Jets are probably not going anywhere this year. And 
it's not like if Wilson underwhelms, he's not going to be the quarterback next season for the Jets. Like it's only his second year. Like he's going to need some time, but that's probably the guy that I am also interested to watch. You know, he's been in the headlines for some other reasons recently, but yeah, like that, that I think is the, the big, the other guy, like in terms of a young guy that I'm curious to see. And really, I mean, all those guys like Fields, Lawrence, I mean, the second year leap is when these guys make the jump. So I think you can include any of those guys and maybe I'm taking one of your picks right now, but that, that is, I think the guys that have the most potential to make a big change in their game, because that's what we've seen with guys like Herbert, you know, Mahomes in his second year, Burrow comes back his second year and is very impressive. That I think is where we see the biggest leaps from guys. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I have to make the joke because you, one of your first things was he has a longer leash and I'm like, you know, why he got a leash, right? Cause he got that dog yeah. in him. Um, <laughs> yeah, Zach Wilson obviously has been talked about a lot for not football reasons. And if you don't know why, then go look it up. But I think that's a great point. And that I'm so glad you brought him up because yeah, my, my last quarterback is Justin Fields because the bears have been so bad on offense for years now. I mean, it's, I don't know how long we, the last time we saw a productive bears offense, and it seems like no matter who they get in there, it's going to be the same song and dance. And Justin Fields is such a different quarterback than what they've had. And so I hope for the Bears' sake that it's at least a different looking offense. Like at least we can see some differences there. And I'm not expecting him to be like the darling of the league and, and Patrick Mahomes or whatever, but you know, maybe at least there's there's a different look. They have some new skill players. They never seem to have a plan for what they really want to be. And so that division two is not the strongest. Like we don't know what the Packers are going to be now that they literally have, you know. Christian Watson as their number one wide receiver, whoever you want to say it is. And so I do think if the Bears hit well this year on offense, you know, there's a chance they have a decent team. And so, yeah, like you said, those second year quarterbacks are always really interesting to see how they progress. Yeah, dude, the man, the Bears are going to be a tough watch this year. Like they, their offensive line is not going to be good. And it's Darnell Mooney and then nobody. Right after that like it their receiving depth chart is probably the worst in the league so I Fields is kind of one of these guys where if he looks good then it's like okay like he he is a very good quarterback like if he but if he looks bad I I don't know how much I'm going to be able to take away from it because one of the reasons that Fields has had a good connection with Mooney so far is because we know Fields is a big play hunter like he, he wants to throw the ball down the field and Mooney is a guy that has the ability to do that which I do think Mooney will have a, another solid year because he's such a focus in their offense, but that I have no confidence whatsoever that the Bears are going to put anything resembling a structure around him this year offensively, just in terms of the personnel that they have on their roster. And so because of that, it's going to be really hard to judge. Like, if, if he has a bad year, was it actually him? Like, I'm going to have no idea. And, you know, maybe he comes out and looks bad enough where there's there's some red flags there, but yeah, he, he's another guy. Like I, I would hope that the Jags will not be in that category this year with a lot of the changes that they've made. Some of the free agents they've brought in where we're actually going to be able to see what Trevor Lawrence can do. But with fields, I think it might be another year of just, I don't know. Right. No, you're exactly right. And I just, I just think for the bears organization's sake that it's going to be an interesting year to see what they want to do after the year, because do they continue to go on with fields or is it maybe time to move on? 
Um, yeah, I talked about that on like one of the recent episodes I I did where one of the hot takes that I talked about was like Justin Fields is going to throw for four thousand yards at some point with the Bears, and I said yes, but not anytime soon because it just feels to me like they drafted a quarterback too early. Like, why did you draft a guy, trade up to go get him two years ago? Well, I can tell you why. It's because they were desperate to save their jobs. The coach and general manager are both gone now. But why did you go do that when you could not have anything ready to support him? Because now the question is going to be like, in three or four years, do you extend him? Do you even have enough of an evaluation on him to know whether you should extend him or not? Like, do you know if he's good at that point? So, it's going to be a difficult thing to figure out for the Bears. Perfect segue into what we're going to close up our NFL discussion with on whether or not to extend someone. Um, and then I know you have a lot of interest in this quarterback because it's your team. There's been a lot of chatter recently, and I'll let you explain that over Lamar Jackson in general and what type of player he is, whether he's going to get an extension from the Ravens, what he really is as a quarterback. You know, you can say all you want about him, but he's a really good NFL football player. He's won an MVP. He just hasn't quite put it together in the postseason yet. As a Ravens fan, what would you like to see happen with Lamar Jackson? And what do you think, you know, his ceiling is in your eyes for this? I mean, is he someone you would like to see play for the Ravens for a long time? The short answer to that is absolutely. The big question to me is, does Lamar actually want to negotiate right now? Because... To me, it kind of seems like he wants to hit free agency and not because he wants to leave the Ravens. Like, I just think that's something that he wants to do. Like, from, from the interviews he's had and stuff like that, it's, and he, you know, he also doesn't have an agent. So his decision making is not going to be the norm uh, that we see with all of these other guys that just go after the big extension, like we just saw with Kyler Murray. I think that's probably the smartest thing for guys to do because they can get pretty close to what they would get in the open market and free agency and lock it up a couple years earlier. But I see no reason why Lamar would come to the table soon because it doesn't seem like that's something that he's wanted to do. Now, maybe they iron it out at some point here in the future, but I also think Lamar thinks right now that he is probably undervalued because he's coming off a year where he got injured. You know, the Ravens season kind of fell apart, even though they started off in, in December, they were the number one seed in the AFC. So, I still think this team will be pretty good. Injuries just destroyed them last year, but Lamar, I think, probably doesn't think he's at his peak value right now. And if he comes back and has another year like he did in 2019, then all of a sudden, you know, the price is going up again. So the most interesting thing will be, I think, I think the Ravens would have the ability to franchise tag him at least two and, and I think possibly three times. That'll be the most interesting part is is he willing to play under the tag is he willing to go through that for three years to to reach free agency because if he does reach free agency the contract is going to be ridiculous at that point I mean guys just Kirk Cousins got the most guaranteed money in NFL history when he reached free agency right like quarterbacks just don't get to free agency so if he does he's going to cash in but is he willing to pass up the long-term security that most of these guys desire earlier in their career so Honestly, I, I think the Ravens are pretty willing to pay him. Now, like maybe there'll be some disagreement on the money. I, I haven't seen any of that yet. That doesn't seem to be what the holdup is currently. It just seems like that's not really what Lamar is looking for right now. But he does seem like a guy to me. Where, the reason I'm not as worried is because, at least right now, he doesn't feel like a guy to me that would sit out. 
and maybe that changes. You never, it's hard to tell because some, you know, it's a business decision, right? So even the guys that love the game, like they're sometimes going to make that decision, but especially with him representing himself, he doesn't feel like a guy that would say like, if I'm on the franchise tag, I'm going to sit out. And so at that point, it's like, okay, well we have four more years of him then. So there, that's still a lot of time to figure something out. And if we have him for four more years and he's gone at that point, that's still what eight years of having him at quarterback. Like that's a pretty long time. So I, I'm not super concerned, but I do think this is more just the way Lamar is playing it versus some major rift between he and the organization. Let's talk about the performance aspect of it because a lot has been made over what he is as a quarterback. If he's good enough to win a Super Bowl, which I think is insane because obviously, yes, it just matters what what team you're on in your situation and what this, you know, what's happening in that year. Um, but what what do you expect this season from Lamar Jackson as a quarterback and from the Ravens in general? This will be the closest thing we do to a season preview because there's been a lot of talk recently about what Lamar can't do rather than how good he actually is. Yeah, I think the biggest issue I have with the discussion around Lamar is that the running game does not – people aren't willing to connect that with the passing game at all. And so they look at the passing, like the way he throws the ball or the accuracy he throws the ball with sometimes. And that is certainly subpar when you compare it to some of the more accurate quarterbacks in the league. But what they don't factor in is that his rushing threat is opening up so many things for their offense that are not going to go down in the stat sheet as created by Lamar Jackson. They're just going to go down as a completed pass or a rush that goes for more yards because Lamar is on the other end of the read option. So he, to me, is more difficult to compare to other quarterbacks because you're not looking at the same factors of success for the most part as you are with the other guys. Now, the other thing is, if you look at the passing numbers, they're still not bad. Like, they are very good. I mean, the year the year he won the MVP, he led the NFL in passing touchdowns, right? So this it's not like this guy can't throw. Like, that. that's just a myth. And yeah, he's not the most accurate quarterback in the league, but I still don't think his accuracy is bad. And when you pair that with the most athletic quarterback in the league, I mean, it's, it's probably him or Josh Allen, depending on whether you're talking about like strength or just agility and speed. You have to, I think, evaluate it as a whole. And the idea, I think that the idea that a, he can't win a Super Bowl or a quarterback like him can't win a Super Bowl, I think is very it's very easy to prove, but and you don't actually have to back it up because there's never been a quarterback like Lamar Jackson. So, of course, you can say that a quarterback quarterback like Lamar Jackson can't win a Super Bowl because we've never seen it. Be like, it's, it's so much different than saying, you know, a quarterback like Joe Montana that stands in the pocket and throws the ball well can't win a Super Bowl because everybody is like that. Like, that's that's how the position is played. So... That, that's my biggest issue with it is we're dealing with a sample size of one and pretending like that is an end-all be-all for somebody that still has not been that – like he had one bad game against the Titans. And then other than that, I wouldn't really say they've underperformed in any other year that they've been in the playoffs. So that's the biggest thing to me. I feel like because we haven't seen it before, people are more stubborn, but – just like, and I'm not, I'm not saying that he's going to have this level of success. 
I remember in 2015 when every single person, when Charles Barkley was on national television saying a three-point shooting team can never win an NBA Finals. That's never something that's going to happen. You know, defense and, you know, post-game is always going to be important. And then they went and won a bunch of finals, right? So we're always resistant to the new thing until it becomes the normal thing. And I think running quarterbacks is going to be that in the NFL. That's something that this is not going away now. These guys are getting more and more athletic. So I I think you can say it now, but in 10 years, I think it's going to seem pretty foolish. Yeah, I think it, I mean, we can talk about, or I'll just mention quickly, you know, we were talking about before we we came on about the, the defense coordinator in the athletic article that suggested, you know, Lamar, no matter how many MVPs he wins, no matter how he looks on the field, he's never a really truly tier one, you know, A plus quarterback. And it's just what you want to see, right? It, it's it's because he doesn't fit what you want to see, the way he acts, his personality, the way he plays on the field. Yeah, it's unorthodox. But like you said, the closest thing we have to compare him to is Michael Vick, I would say. And even Michael Vick and him are not the same player. And so, like, you know, I don't really know what you want from Lamar because there's there's so many quarterbacks who have never won a Super Bowl, right, who haven't made it nearly as far as Lamar. And like you said, it's not like the Ravens have been bad. They've been, you know, up at the top of the AFC most of the years. Lamar's been a good quarterback. So injuries last year completely derailed the year. Hopefully he'll have a lot of his players back. And we'll see how it goes. But the, like you said, I mean, I know you're the Ravens fan, but the fact the the position that Lamar can't be good or can't lead his team to to a victory because he doesn't play quarterback like everybody else is just is just insane and, and it's something that you know you can't say just because he's different. Yeah, and the other thing is like I just hate the Super Bowl being the standard for guys like that. That is such a unrealistic standard. There's one team that wins the Super Bowl. Like right. that, you can't hold guys to that. Like Josh Allen last year. Josh Allen played well enough to win a Super Bowl, but he didn't like they couldn't get a stop against the Chiefs, right? They got unlucky. Things like that happen, and not everybody can be Tom Brady, right? Like you look back at Aaron Rodgers' career, you would think that guy should have more Super Bowls, but he doesn't, right? Like not everybody can get that. So I think that's difficult. The other thing I'll add about the article itself was this this guy, Mike Sando from The Athletic, he reaches out to NFL personnel, scouts, GMs, coaches every year. I think he reached out to 53 this year have the, and has them tier quarterbacks in tiers one through five. They're then putting rankings um, to show like what, what real NFL personnel think of these guys. He also lists descriptions for these tiers. Like He summarizes what he kind of envisions these tiers as being to help these people get a better idea of what they're evaluating. Part of tier one in his article is absolutely elite in the pocket. I think you can say Lamar Jackson is not an elite pocket quarterback. So for people that didn't have him in tier one in that argument, in that discussion, I think that's what the defensive coordinator was saying is he can win 12 MVPs. He won't be in tier one. I don't technically think that based on that criteria, it's wrong to not put him in tier one. If you're saying that being elite in the pocket is required to be in tier one. But I think it's kind of ridiculous to say that you have to be elite in the pocket to be in that tier. There's other guys in tier one that are extremely limited in other aspects of the game. Like Tom Brady was in tier one. He can't move. So like why why should one part of the game be a requirement to be in that tier, but then being completely immobile is not a requirement to be in that tier. So I think really the way that quarterbacks are evaluated needs to change more so than the evaluation of Lamar Jackson specifically. Yeah, at the end of the day, like you said, you know, we we don't like him or people don't because he's the new thing. He plays it differently. 
and there's so much already surrounding him that at the end of the day, it's just going to be one of those things where unfortunately for him, he has to prove it. And whether or not that means a Super Bowl, whether that, that means, you know, having success in the playoffs, winning another MVP, he's going to have to go out and play very well. And then everything will take care of itself. And at the end of the day, I think he's a good quarterback. I think you do as well. And he's just going to have to continue to, to be what he has been so far in the NFL. All right, that's going to wrap up our NFL discussion. Like I said, we'll have a preview coming up talking about the actual teams. But obviously, quarterbacks are a lot easier and a lot more fun to talk about individually and kind of forecast. We'll have a fantasy preview. And so NFL will definitely get going here in, in a while and we'll have a lot of content coming out. All right, to close out today, we're going to talk a little bit of college football because it's also starting up soon. We're going to talk about realignment with Sully. I think we both talked about it on our separate podcast, but we're going to kind of talk about where we think it will end up. And then we're going to maybe talk about some teams we could see making it into the playoff scene this year that we have not seen before. So stay tuned. We'll take one final break and then we'll be back to close it up. All right, to close it up today, we're talking about college football. Now, moving on from NFL into the college football world. Once again, we're not going to do a, a really a full preview. It's harder to do that anyways with college sports because you really don't know what's going on a lot of the time. But we want to talk about the overall sport, especially what we've heard this offseason and some of the news. Like I said, I think me and Sully have both talked about what's going on with realignment, what we should expect to see. And I guess, Sully, I'll start. You know, we got news that, you know, USC, UCLA are leaving the Pac-12 and, and going to be joining the the Big Ten. And, and really what I think, you know, that just means is no longer is is college football regionalized, right? I mean, it's it's become, it doesn't matter where you are in, in the United States of America, you can be in any conference you want. And so I guess my question is, you know, what's, what's the end game here? Obviously, the simple answer is, well, we're forming mega conferences, but are we trying to be a mini NFL? Is that what college football is really doing? I think if the goal is to grow revenue, then being a mini NFL is probably the goal here because we know that that's what people love, right? Like that NFL brings in more money than any other sport. And I do think that it might take a while, but it would not surprise me at all if in 10 years we're, we have the SEC and we have the Big Ten because I – struggle to see how some of these other conferences are going to survive and how they would want to survive when they're making such significantly less revenue compared to these other conferences. I mean, it, these these revenue deals that the Big Ten and the SEC are going to have are just going to dwarf that of any other conference. And I think it's going to make it very difficult for any team, whether that be teams in the ACC like Clemson or Florida State, whether that be the teams that didn't leave the Pac-12, like Oregon and Utah, or Notre Dame, who is still kind of out there as the looming independent, I think it's just going to become less and less financially feasible to not be a part of these massive revenue deals. And at that point, it becomes really interesting because if you have two big conferences, all of a sudden, do you actually gain back the regional part of the sport if the scheduling starts to take on like a more regional pod type outlook? Like, I I don't know. Who, who knows if it would actually end up like that? But I think there's maybe a chance where we look back on this and if it's executed right, it's not the end of the world because we're obviously going to get more big games because of this, which I think everyone is excited for. But the regional part, like you mentioned, is the thing that I think most people are worried about here. So if these conferences can create a structure where these regions are still a little bit more 
grouped together with each other, I think that is the best case scenario for college sports at this point because they're obviously changing in a big way, but there are pieces of the way college sports have functioned that I think are valuable and useful to keep around, even though there are definitely some other parts of college sports that that are long overdue that need to be changed. So I think walking that line is going to be very difficult, but it'll, who knows how this is going to turn out. I mean, we could look up, I, I think there's a chance in 10 or 15 years that this functions a lot more like one league than it does like a bunch of conferences agreeing to play each other every once in a while. Yeah, this is a really difficult subject to talk about for all the reasons you mentioned because it's it's you have people we just talked about Lamar Jackson <clears throat> how he is so different and we don't we don't like that. We don't like change and especially when with college sports and you're messing with with people's universities here there's going to be a lot of pushback for what's happening. And you know, in the grand scheme of things, the one thing that I that I've heard and I'll I want to talk about, you know, the small school thing where it's like, well, what are these small schools supposed to do? They have no chance. It's like, look at college football history. They've never had a chance. Like you'll, you'll have the occasional, you know, school rise and then fall, but it's always been the same 10 to 15 teams are at the top. So, you know, these smaller schools, yes, the games probably used to mean more to them. And now they're just going to mean absolutely nothing, but they've always been struggling to make money. It's always been a revenue thing for them. And so, <clears throat> there people are just gonna have to get over that but what i will I, I i will be concerned about is you know are we just at this point going to say well it doesn't really matter anymore that alabama plays auburn that game doesn't matter because guess what they're gonna play 11 teams that are just as good as auburn and the rest of the year and yeah we'll still care about who wins that game but as far as its importance the rivalries and things of that nature of winning those important games are going away and so it's really what do you value, sentimental things or monetary things? And obviously, money is going to trump, trump sentimentality every day. And that's where we're moving in college football. Like you said, exactly how we get to this one league, two leagues, I don't know how it's going to work, but we're headed in that direction. And so then the question begs to differ. We've already seen you know, the format for crowning a champion change with the college football playoff. How is that going to affect the playoff in your eyes? Are we, are we going to go to more? Will this make it easier maybe to broaden the borders of who we let in? Or is it you know just going to be we become the NFL playoffs, if you will? I'm not sure it will affect the structure of it too much in terms of like whether we move to you know 8 or 12 or whatever. But I will be curious to see if eventually, and I think this will be further down the road, I think there's a chance eventually we're looking at a world where if you're not in one of these major conferences, you're not eligible for the playoff. And that'll be a very, I think the funny thing is have any of these teams not in the major conferences ever really been a huge concern? I mean, I guess that means Cincinnati might not have made it this year, but now Cincinnati's in the big 12, right? Like they were just a year behind that. So I don't think it would have much of an impact on the actual sport, but I think that is something that a lot of people would take issue with. The The biggest thing to me with all of the realignment, and you mentioned like the game, the specific games losing value. I kind of disagree there. Like I, I don't think the fans themselves will, will look at the Iron Bowl any differently. My concern is that we're going to lose some of those kind of games. Like, right now like if Oregon were to leave the Pac-12 
they just wouldn't play Oregon State anymore, right? Like now, now that UCLA is leaving, you know, there there's some Pac-12 rivalries that they're certainly going to lose out on, even though they do bring their you know close cross-town rival with them. So that to me, like Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, is that game going to be played now? That is the biggest issue because there is a value to those games that's more than just the ranking assigned to those teams. Like there, there's something more that fans are going to care about. And that translates to money as well. That's not just a sentimental thing. Like their fans would rather go see Bedlam than Oklahoma play Florida probably. So that to me is the thing that need that there is a fine line that needs to be walked here because if you can try to keep as many of those rivalries as possible, whether you schedule them in out of conference games that that stick around every year, or you you ha- end up having such big conferences that most of the rivalries are still able to be played, if that can happen, then I think this will end up being a good thing. But that is a very big question mark at this point because you know, like these conferences. With with how much you know fighting is going around right now, these teams are not going to turn around and be super excited to schedule each other at this point. Like I think that's going to be something that's going to be difficult to make happen because, as dumb as it might be for Oklahoma State to not play Oklahoma and lose out on that revenue, I think there's going to be part of them that's going to look at them and say like, you know, no, we don't want to play you. You you left our conference. We don't we don't want to talk to you anymore. Like we don't like you. So that part I think will be the most difficult part because there is something different about rivalry games in college football than in in the NFL as as much as there are still NFL rivalries like that is such I think it's such more in the foundation of college football yeah that's a really good point and and my point wasn't so much I I agree with you the fact that that some of those games will go away is the is the bigger problem but it's it's more so it normally Alabama and Auburn the game is relevant to the national conversation as far as who may make the playoff or who may win the SEC West. And yeah. my point is that if you get all these teams together, I mean, sorry Auburn fans, and I am an Alabama fan, but I'm not saying this to be mean. Auburn may be beat up so much, there's that game doesn't matter in the national conversation anymore. And so that's what I'm saying is that by bringing all these other teams in, it devalues the importance of that game not to the fans but to the success of those schools and the overall picture. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I, I do think what would become really interesting is I think by, if we go to these mega conferences, by the end of the season, I think we're going to have a much better idea of who's good and who's not because right. you're going to play four or five tough games. And I think that's honestly better for the sport. One, because there's more good regular season games, but also we get a chance to see like last year, Everybody thought Oregon was really good the whole year because they beat Ohio State. And then they got destroyed by Utah twice at the end of the year, right? Like it took us that long to realize like, okay, wait, Oregon might not like might not be as good as we thought they were. That is not going to happen if we're in these mega conferences because every other week you're going to be playing a very good team. And I also think that makes it more interesting because it's going to become, a. this is where I think it might become the most like the NFL is you're going to look at a team that's nine and three and say, like that's a really good team. Like that team might be worthy of a playoff berth if we go to a 12 team playoff. And you know, there's probably already some three loss teams that could have made it like maybe a eight and four team or a seven and five team with a super difficult record is able to squeeze in in a certain year. Like I think that will be the most interesting part. And we're going to find out so much more about these teams over the course of a season. And it it might make the playoff selection even tougher because there's not going to be, I think four teams that you're going to look at and say like they're 12 and oh, they're 12 and oh, they're 11 and one, they're 11 and one, they're in. 
Like if these conferences get big enough where, you know, Alabama has to play Clemson and then Georgia and then Florida and then LSU and then Auburn, like it's going to be a lot harder to go undefeated. So that I think I'm actually looking forward to just because in the NFL, you really do feel like every week, no matter who is playing, there's a chance that the the underdog can win. And in a lot of weeks in college football, that just doesn't exist. Yeah, that's once again a great point, and I think that's really where we're headed. I mean, we they are becoming an NFL in that sense, is that they're making all these games probably going to be a lot harder to win, and it's taking more of the like amateur games where we play Louisiana Monroe and all these cupcakes. That's that's going to go away, and yeah, it hurts those smaller schools, but the product on the field is going to be a lot better. And you know. We were talking about off air. We're we're coming up on our one year anniversary of doing this podcast. In the very first episode, I talked about NIL, and I'm not blaming NIL for what's happening, but I did say the bigger schools, it's only going to push them further into this in, ahead of everyone else in the sport, and that's what we're. I think realignment is is a example of that, where even though it's not necessarily only because of NIL, it's just how the sport is going in general that these bigger schools are rising to the top and, and forming this you know, mega college football league. And it's just the way the sport is now with all the problems it has had. And so that's, like you said, that's going to be the interesting part of it is now these teams are going to have to go through a gauntlet of a schedule every year. And, you know, the the funny argument on, on Twitter is always when there's this, you know, breakout team or whether it be somebody nobody's heard of or it's Auburn one year, well, they don't play anybody. Or if it's, you know, Wake Forest, well, they're in the ACC. Well, now it's going to be... You're all, you're playing everybody. Everybody's in the same conference. That's not even going to be an argument anymore, which I do think will be a really cool thing to see. Yeah, and it's funny because with the NIL stuff, I I was a little more on the side of like, you know, the best teams always get the best recruits. I don't know if that's going to change very much. Realignment is going to shift the balance of power a little bit. Like there there are going to be teams where if these teams are left on the outside looking in they are going to be in a much more difficult spot if they're not in one of these greater conferences because they're not going to have the revenue to, to go out and recruit. They're not going to have the revenue to go pay a coach that deserves to be paid more money and have him stick around. I think this will have a much bigger impact than NIL will in terms of the ability of these lesser programs to stick around a little bit more. And you know, I, you mentioned you know the idea of like an Alabama who hosts a Louisiana Monroe and that pretty much pays for the Louisiana Monroe season. You know, it would be it will be tough for those programs to stick around when they're not getting that big paycheck game. But I will say, it's not Alabama's athletic department's job to help Louisiana Monroe. It's Alabama's athletic department. Their their job is to provide the best product for their fans. And if that means Louisiana Monroe's football program goes out of business, like that's just how a competitive market works, right? Like their their job is to provide the best product for their fans. And the fans want that. No one wants to watch that kind of game. The fans want to see big games. So there probably is going to be some collateral damage here, but I think everybody's choices reflect the fact as as much as we like to, you know, say, oh, what about the small schools? Like when was the last time that anybody sat down and watched a Sunbelt game if it wasn't a, com- a college they went to? Like nobody actually does that. So that, that to me is like, it, it's going to be part of it. And it, it's tough for those smaller programs, but it's not the bigger program's job to bail them out when they can provide a much better product to their fans if this change is made. Right. I mean, it's it's the classic, you know, you, I look out for me, you look out for you. And, you know, at the end of the day, 
the Alabamas of the world, the Clemsons of the world, they don't they don't care about you know the the peewee schools, if you will, and not anything against those schools, but they're just not able to compete with with bigger schools like you know the Alabamas of the world. So that I mean, it's 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 an inevitability. And if you're on the side of the smaller schools, yes, it stinks. It it, it does, and it's unfortunate because we've had so much pride in, in some of those schools for a long time. But the way the way the world is moving, the way college football has moved, here we are. Um, and the bigger schools are always going to win. The money is always going to win. And that's what we're seeing. Which is a good segue into how we're going to close today talking about college football because we're going to talk about some sleeper teams, some teams maybe that are on the outside looking in this season. You know, we saw Cincinnati get in last year. Uh, the first, I think it was the first, um, you know, really non-Power 5 school uh, – depending on how you want to classify Notre Dame. Um, but, you know, the same teams are always seem to be at the top. The Alabamas, the Clemsons, the Ohio States, the Oklahomas, whoever you want to throw in there. Georgia, obviously, is the defending champion. So, Sully, I'll, I'll let you go first. And we're not doing a draft or anything here, but just a discussion of maybe some teams, maybe some things we should watch out for to break up the, you know, seeming march toward destiny that we always have with these teams. Yeah, I think the one team that immediately sticks out to me – and. I honestly feel like you'll probably have this one too, is Utah. Like they're a team that's kind of been around the top 10 in preseason rankings. The biggest, one of the biggest things that I look for with the team that I think has a chance to make the playoff is a legitimate path to get there. And I really like the way Utah's schedule lines up. First of all, they're in the Pac-12, so they're not going to be going through a gauntlet. We know that. They also get Florida to open up the season. And I think Florida could be decent this year, but I think if there's a time to get them, it's game one because this is a, there's been a lot of roster changes, you know, with guys transferring out. This is going to be Billy Napier's first game as a head coach. They're certainly not going to be at their peak form at this point in the season. Like a team is not going to be ready to go that fast when they've had so much change happen in an offseason. It's also down in Gainesville. That's going to be a difficult task, you know, to go down there in August or September and play in the heat. But I think that is the type of win on a national stage where if Utah makes a statement in that game, if they are undefeated through Pac-12 play, it's going to be a little more difficult for people to poke holes in their resume if they do lose another game because you do have that Florida game to look back on if Florida does end up being a decent team. So Cam Rising is you know, the quarterback out of Utah. I think he's a guy where I don't think he is, you know, going to win the Heisman, but I do think he's good enough for a team that is super physical, you know, can run the ball well, very athletic. I think he is good enough to where they can be in the playoff conversation. And that, a lot of times with these kind of teams, that's the biggest issue is the quarterback isn't there. Like from what he showed last year, I, I think that talent is there. So Utah is the first one that I would say, um, if there is a team outside of the top five, which you know, a lot of the years, there's not a team out of the top five that's going to make the playoff, but if there is a team outside this year, I think they're probably the best bet. Yeah, it's a really good pick. And and it kind of is the exception to what I'm about to say, because unfortunately, as we just talked about, you kind of have to have pedigree to be good in college football. We don't see these like rinky dink schools or even the, the lesser power five who have never been good suddenly rise to stardom. But Utah is one of those teams who they're not necessarily they've been good at football, but not a dominant power. But yet they made it to the Rose Bowl last year, gave Ohio State all they could handle. And they seem to be, you know, pushing towards, you know, being the Cincinnati of last season, one of those teams kind of on the outside of of trying to get a playoff berth. Um, and so that's a really good, really good pick. I'm going to go with one that uh, is 
been really successful at football. I have several I could go here, but I'm going to start with Miami. Um, Mario Cristobal is coming back home. They have, you just mentioned quarterbacks important. Everybody seems to be in love with Tyler Van Dyke. I by no means think Miami is going to be really good because they haven't proven that yet. But they do have Tyler Van Dyke, who's a good quarterback. They play in the ACC, which is arguably the weakest conference in the Power Five now. Well, it's hard to say because so many teams are leaving. But um, I do think, you know, besides Clemson, there's not a ton there. And so Miami has a chance, you know, to be pretty good this year if they're able to get that offense going, especially with Van Dyke and Cristobal, who seems to be pretty a pretty good coach, um, is able to get them to where he wants them to be. So they're a team, like I said, has a lot of pedigree, so it's not a shock that they could be good, that maybe could make some noise this year. Yeah, I, I think Miami is a program that, with Cristobal at the helm, I think will be, be very good in the future. But like you mentioned, it, it, this is exactly the point I was going to make, is most of the time you need to see something from these teams. And I, I'm I'm about to kind of hit on an exception to that, I think, in a little bit. But most of the time I think you need to see something from a team the year before in order to think they're ready to make that kind of leap. And with how poorly Miami played last year, I have a hard time thinking Cristobal is going to flip that roster around to making them a playoff contender that fast. But I will say that Tyler Van Dyke is one of those quarterbacks that there is enough optimism around where if if they could make it work, I think he's got to be at the core of that because Cristobal has come in, he's he's recruiting very well, but those guys aren't playing this year, right? Like that's that's way down the road. So they're, I think coming into this year, they have, you know, according to the recruiting rankings, they're, they have about the 15th most talented roster if you just look at like average recruiting rankings over the past four or five years. So it's a decently talented roster, but it would take such a leap that I'd be pretty surprised if, if they did end up making the playoff. Yeah, no argument there. I mean, I think I'm just trying to – what could happen? In a lot of these teams, yeah. we just don't know. Well, no, and that's what's so hard about this is like – you either kind of have to take the easy way out, and this is kind of what I did. Like I, I, none of my teams are outside the top twenty, right? Like that, it's it's very hard, almost impossible to find a team outside the top twenty-five that you're going to say, like, yeah, I think this team can make the playoff because it's not like the NFL where teams go worst to first every single year. Like in the NFL, there's always, almost every single year, there's a team that finishes last in their division the year before that wins their division the next year. That doesn't happen in college football because it takes two or three recruiting cycles to get a team fully ready to go. And that perfectly transitions into the next team that I have on this list, which is Texas A&M. Because if there is a team where it's finally time for the talent to start to show, it's them. I mean, if you look at their recruiting, they should be on par with the Alabamas, with the Georgias. That That's the level that they've recruited at recently. And we kind of saw with Georgia now over the past couple of years, how that has started to pay off. And I think it's time to start to see that with A&M. And just like with all of these teams, you know, you're going to have to see it to fully believe it. But if I'm looking at a team closer to the end of the top 10 that I actually think has a chance to make that leap, I think they're one of the best choices because talent is not the issue. And a lot of times the other stuff is much easier to fix. Like the coaching or the, the scheme, those things are adjustable. Like the talent you have on the field is not. And that's why I think A&M has a decent shot. I don't, I don't think they've named a starter yet between Haynes King and Max Johnson. I think both those guys are pretty good. I would be okay with either of those, but what are, what are your thoughts on, you know, who's going to start at quarterback for them and also just their overall team outlook for this year? 
I mean, I, I agree with you there. I mean, I I still have to see it to believe it from them. It's one of those things where I think I talked about it not too long ago where they've never really seemed to put it together on offense under Jimbo. I mean, even with Kellen Mond, it was always like that was a hindrance. So they have to find that quarterback, if you will. Um, I think in a perfect world, I think I think uh, Jimbo wants Haynes King to be the guy because he tried to give him the job last year and then he got hurt. Um, and so I think that's probably who they want to be it. But they also have that freshman coming in. I think his name is Connor Weigman. Obviously, you know, that doesn't – just because you're a good freshman doesn't mean you're going to be handed the keys. But that'll be really interesting. But I don't know if I've seen enough from Max Johnson to lead me to believe that I would want him to be the starter unless he suddenly takes his game to another level. So I'd probably lean Haynes King just because you don't – you hope he can be really good. That would be my That would be my lean. Yeah, I think I'd probably try to start Haynes King, but you know, obviously we don't know how these guys have looked in camp. But I, I still would be comfortable with Johnson as my quarterback. I'm probably a little higher on him than you, but uh, I, I think you know LSU was not exactly the easiest situation to play in over the past couple of years. But who knows? I mean, it's not like he's shown a ton either. So yeah, that that'll be an interesting storyline to follow with them at the quarterback position. But that they're a team that you know, especially you know, it all comes down to the Alabama game for them, right? Like if if they can go in and win that game, then everything changes for them, and they'll be in the top four of the rankings immediately. But obviously, that's going to be a very difficult task this year. Yeah, fair point. And I think you know, A and M probably honestly is wishing they would have saved their Alabama victory for this year because yeah, they definitely. got it last year, but at what cost? Because now Saban is mad. For multiple reasons, that Jimbo Fisher and A and M. No, I think they if just you guaranteed lost. an Alabama win this year. Like they are just as likely to make the playoff as anybody. Right. But that's that's gonna be such a tough game to get through. Right. I mean, Bama fans, Alabama's team. That's gonna be the most fired up they've been to me in a long time for a regular season game. And so, Definitely. probably I don't, since LSU twenty nineteen. Right. Right. So it's gonna be an interesting game, but I definitely think Alabama is gonna be the favorite. They will be, but I think they should be the favorite for a lot of different reasons. All right, we kind of went the same way with, or I'm going to go the same way with this one. I don't really have a team here, and I'm not saying this team could make the playoff, but I'm going to go potential SEC East team because I think there's several teams that could fit this mold. The West is obviously a gauntlet. Like, it just is what it is, and you're always going to be looking up to Alabama. At least, you know, I hope so. And so we know at Georgia how good they are, but I still have questions about Georgia every year because of how good their offense can be. But if their defense is so dominant, it doesn't really matter. But I do think there are several teams, yours included with the Florida Gators, even though there's a new coach, the Tennessee, Kentucky, that could be primed to make a leap. Not saying this team can make the playoffs, but I think there is one of those teams that could probably give Georgia a game, and especially I didn't do my homework, but if they have them at home. And so it'll be interesting to see if one of those teams can actually kind of make a leap this year into maybe not the playoff conversation, but I'm just looking for teams that maybe surprise us in general, and maybe they surprise us in the way of an SEC championship berth. Now, I'd still have Georgia 99 percentile there, but maybe one of these teams takes a leap. Yeah, Tennessee is probably the one I'm most confident will be good, just because I, I don't really see any way their offense is not at least good. Um, I I mean, Hendon Hooker is quality starting quarterback. He's going to be one of those guys that puts up great numbers this year. Florida to me is just like if Anthony Richardson stays healthy and as good as is as good as people expect, they could be a lot better than people expect. But they their depth is not great at a lot of positions. You know that's what's going to happen with a first year head coach. So if guys go down, the season could fall apart pretty quickly for them. Especially if Richardson doesn't play, like that team is going to be 
Um, tough to watch at that point, but he is so singularly good. Like I genuinely think he's talented enough to go win the Heisman. So, you know, that's a team where you, you could say the ceiling's higher just because of him. Um, Kentucky, you know, is an interesting one. The Will Levis talk has been crazy. Like, I, I mean, I just did not expect people to be this high on him coming into the year. Like I, I it's not like I've watched a bunch of tape on him yet or anything, but I did not expect that coming into the year. They, they did lose a lot of starters, but they've had a good foundation. And if Levis is as good as people think he might be, then that's another team. So yeah, I, I definitely think that it's very hard to tell from those three teams right now, like which of them is going to come out of the SEC East and be like a real threat to Georgia. It might be none of them. It might be multiple of them, but yeah, it's, it's difficult to tell at this point with, with so much uncertainty around those teams. The, the third team that I had here, and, and I think this might be the most obvious one in terms of just like a, a huge range of outcomes is USC because they have so many transfers coming in on their roster. You know, the, the big two are Caleb Williams from Oklahoma and Jordan Addison from Pitt. Like those are, you know, two of the best players in college football, right? They have the potential to be explosive enough offensively, you know, kind of like Lincoln Riley was at Oklahoma where... I could see them running the table in the Pac-12 and making the playoff, but it's first year. You know, a lot of these, it's a new staff. I don't know that they have a ton of defensive talent yet. That's something that Riley's going to have to recruit at, at a high level over the next couple of years. So they're one of those teams that, you know, I could see 12-0, and but I could also see 8-4 and pretty easily. But if we're talking about teams, you know, outside of the top five to seven range that I think have a real chance their upside to me stands out as a team with, you know, a potential Heisman winning quarterback, a coach that's made the playoffs before. And there's not that many of those, you know, there's not that many coaches that are currently coaching that have made the playoff um, with a roster that's talented enough offensively that they could be explosive enough to, to give teams a lot of problems. Yeah, that was definitely one that was on my radar and, and they fit the Miami mold even more so where the pedigrees there, the talent is even more so there, especially with the transfers they're bringing in. But like you said, because of the transfers, are the main players you could see anything from wow this is awesome to man they really didn't gel and yeah. they need to build a culture and that's the thing is college football at the end of the day is not is not the nfl in the sense of you can't just bring guys in and expect it to work like you have to have a culture and that's what's going to be hard for lincoln riley to just get right off the bat maybe he does because he's you know got such a good system or whatever but that's going to be hard to build up. And I think the same thing is true for like, you could throw Texas into there, right? Obviously Sarkeesian's now been there, but they're kind of this team that everybody is expecting to be back and they, they haven't found it yet. And another year where they have a lot of talent, but is it, do they have the culture there yet? And that's what we got to see in order to start believing these teams are actually going to rise back up to be in the top. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think that's where we're at is that, you know, there might be a couple teams like a Cincinnati last year. I don't know of one really that we see, but the, the more likely possibility is that one of these, you know, higher pedigree teams has a really good year. Yeah. And I think this might be a good place to conclude, but if you look at the quarterbacks and all the conferences this year, I am not sure that I've seen a year where I've looked around at so many quarterbacks and said like, oh, I could see a world where they win the Heisman. You know, like we talked about Tyler Van Dyke at uh, Miami, like Leary from NC State, you know, Quinn Ewers at Texas, you know, Dylan Gabriel just transferred into Oklahoma, Caleb Williams, you know, CJ Stroud, Bryce Young is still there, Anthony Richardson, Hinden Hooker, Will Levis, like KJ Jefferson. There's so many guys I feel like that actually have a real chance. I'm sure I left out a few there just rattling off names off the top of my head. So 
I'm very like I I think ranking maybe maybe we can do this later for on one of the episodes like ranking a top ten quarterbacks list heading into the season feels almost impossible with how many transfers we have how many guys that showed something in a flash but haven't done it fully yet and then how many guys where we're expecting maybe a senior leap like a Tyler Van Dyke or a Hendon Hooker like I, I'm so curious to see how the the quarterback landscape unfolds because I genuinely think there's at least six or seven guys maybe more where. It would not surprise me at all if we, at the end of the year, we're looking at them and saying they're a first round pick. Right. Yeah. That's really interesting. And you're right. That's a good episode idea, or at least segment. We'll have to maybe make a collaborative top 10 list of maybe quarterbacks for the college football season because we are at a point because of NIL, because of transfer, where there's so many different situations. You have your people who have played since freshmen and they're just amazing. You have your transfers, you have your, you know, rising seniors who have like Kenny Pick, the Kenny Pickett's of the world. It's all, you know, now in college football at all these different schools. And so it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. But at the end of the day, when we go do our preview in a couple months, couple weeks or a couple weeks, I should say, it's still we're going to be talking about Alabama. We're going to be talking about Oklahoma, Ohio State, Clemson. The same teams are still at the top this year. So we don't want to act like, you know, all these teams we've talked about are probably going to be there at the end. And that's what we're going to continue to see from college football, I think, for a while and we talked about why that is with realignment and how this is becoming a mini NFL but I do think as we see every year there are going to be some interesting storylines outside of the teams that we normally expect definitely yeah all right that's going to wrap up our episode today a lot of really good discussion I think we talked about some things that I haven't thought about in a while and that's that's nice because it can get a little uh caught it in the weeds when you talk about NBA for so much and now we're kind of moving back into football so appreciate you coming on solely hopefully we'll have a lot more fo- football to talk about like I said going to preview NFL and college football coming up yeah uh, solely like I said has his podcast I think it's solely sports hub I don't want to mess up the title yeah that's right he's producing episodes as well and then they're they're a lot uh more focused on one topic than ours and in mind so go listen to him we appreciate you listening to this episode and we'll see you next time